0: Today's reading is um, from chapter 1, verses 57 to 80, and we uh, start contemplating about uh, John the Baptist's birth. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbours and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zachariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. They said to her, there's none among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to the father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet and, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was set free and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbours were filled with awe and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. His father Zachariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him and to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel.
1: I should really be uh, thanking Pastor Jonathan that he sets out the text that I'm going to uh, to be talking on because it once took me a year to get through Ephesians, which only has six chapters. <laughs> so this is a lot faster than I'm used to to preaching through a text. Um, well, it's nice to be with you. My name is Stephen Colum I'm a, a youth and young adult pastor that gets to, to serve here. And it's an absolute uh, pleasure and an honor for me uh, to speak God's word um, to you. And I really pray that our time uh, that we have this morning and the mornings that I have had have proven to be times of encouragement to your faith, have proven to be times of instilling more faith into you. That is the intent that Luke writes with, and and that's my hope uh, for the congregation that is here. This morning we're looking at the birth of John and the naming of John and then the song that comes from Zechariah after his naming. And the crowd has gathered around and they're wondering, what will this child be? It's evident that the Lord's hand is upon him. What will this child be? And this links our two portions of Scripture, the birth and the naming and the role of John as a prophet of the Most High God. For that reason, I've titled this morning's sermon, Our Faithful God Seeks Faithful Servants. Our Faithful God Seeks Faithful Servants. And that is because we're gonna learn three things as we move through the text. Number one, God's highest priority is to bring people to faith in His Word. If you're wondering what's the goal and the aim of God, it is to bring you to faith in His Word. Number two, faith is the means by which we receive salvation. That's actively trusting in God's Word is the means by which we receive and we hold on to the salvation that God has for us. And thirdly, God's salvation delivers us from a life of sin into worship in freedom. We could look at this the other way, through the eyes of Theophilus and Luke, who is writing to him. Luke doesn't want Theophilus just to be well-informed about the teachings of Jesus. That isn't his goal. He doesn't want him to just be academically smart. He wants him to put faith, to put trust in what he is learning about Christ. Luke wants Theophilus to know the means by which he can hold on to this salvation is through the faith which he will receive in understanding. And he also wants Theophilus to know that salvation, it delivers us from our past lives to worship God. Theophilus, who who once didn't know God, can now come and know him, and he can leave the pagan life that he had and now come into a relationship with God to serve him the rest of the days of his life in worship to him. And so if we personalize this, God's ultimate priority with you is to bring you to faith in his word, that you would receive salvation and that you would walk in that salvation in worshiping God all the days of your life. That is the beauty of what God is doing. And with that, we're going to pray and then we're gonna move into the text. Heavenly Father, I pray that these words would be clear, and that they would be your words. Father, we thank you for John and his ministry. We thank you for your patience with Zechariah. And we ask, Lord, that you would show us what it is that you want us to know in each one of our personal lives, that we might live for you. In your name, amen. When the angel first appeared uh, to Zechariah in the temple, He said this to Zachariah, he said, Elizabeth, your wife, she's going to bear you a son, you're going to call him John, and there's going to be so much joy and delight, and many are going to rejoice at his birth. And so we meet the birth of John, how? We've got the family, we've got the friends, you know, they're all coming around, they're like, yay, baby's here, baby's arrived, like we always do every time a baby arrives. And we have this elderly lady, Elizabeth, who's old enough to be John's grandmother, And I'm sure she is weeping with tears of joy because the Lord has finally taken her disgraces away from the people, and I'm sure that her family and friends are weeping with her as they look upon what is happening. John, according to the Levitical law under the Old Covenant, he's to be circumcised on the eighth day. And at that time, he was being given the name Zachariah. There are two things that we need to know about this. First of all, it is not a common practice to name your child at the circumcision date. That's not a common practice, that's an anomaly in the text. And secondly, traditionally, the son is never usually named after the father. He was normally named after the grandfather. It's another anomaly. And the way that I'm able to understand this unfolding drama is that the family and the friends have assumed the name Zachariah upon the child because he has been unnamed for eight days. Zachariah, as we know from the text, he's an old man. He's technically the grandfather to the child, if you want to go from an age perspective. And 59, verse 59 can be read, and they were naming him or they were calling him Zechariah. Not that it was official time of naming, but they were assuming the name upon him. They were taking that upon themselves. Classic family friends telling you how to parent and what to do when your child arrives. <laughs> And we still do this kind of stuff today. And so here we have this child born of a prophetic fulfillment. But the prophecy has not quite found its full fulfillment, for John has not been named. The angel said his name will be John. And so why the wait? Why the eight days of lingering for Zechariah and Elizabeth? And so we look at this drawing out and we wonder, is this a skepticism? Is this perhaps something that they're putting down to a coincidence? And I think how many times have we received answered prayers and we're like, I'm just going to put that down to coincidence. I was praying for it, but it might just came about anyway. Is this what we're looking at? And so after eight days of hesitancy of naming John, the social norms, the tradition start mounting up because the family has now taken it upon themselves to be like, ooh, good, 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 gaga, little Zachariah, look at this beautiful little boy. And it would make sense that at the circumcision then, the official naming has to take its place. And the reason that it would most likely take place at the circumcision in respect here is because of what circumcision represents. It is the sign of the covenant established between Abraham and God. God made promises to Abraham. And he said, the divine marking that I'm going to give you, so you will know that you are recipients of my promise, is the sign of circumcision. And no one knows this better than Zachariah and Elizabeth. Both from priestly lines, they understand the covenant well. And so it would be an extreme lack of faith, an extreme lack of faith, to circumcise their child and acknowledge we are recipients of God's promises, yet at the same time not call him John because God is now fulfilling those promises that he spoke of through Abraham. Do you see how it would be a lack of faith? Naming him John doesn't just say, I acknowledge God's promises. But I also acknowledge that he will fulfill his promises. And he has guaranteed that through the angel that has come. And again, this can be like us. We read the promises of God that he's going to give us. Things like that we can pray according to his name and according to his will and he will answer them. And the Lord will have them and he will answer our prayers. And we doubt that it is actually the sovereign hand of the Lord who will bring them to pass. Because we're little faith, we doubt. The beauty for Zachariah and Elizabeth is they name him John. And so they show that by faith they acknowledge that they are recipients of God's grace, which is what John's name means. It means God is gracious. You see, it's theology, the understanding of God, the understanding of his promises and what he has spoken, and it's trust, living according to what he has given us, that is working in them faith. That is this active trusting in the word of God. And they do that by naming their child, John. Faith like this is going to go against the social norms, against the pressures. Christians, we need to realize this. If we have faith in God's word, when we actually do it, it's going to create disturbances with people who do not live by faith. They're going to want to get you to go along with society or the general masses, and you're going to have to make critical, practical decisions in your life to say, I won't listen to what others say because I'm going to do what my Lord has asked me to do. Those times will come. And we see that this name is hotly debated and fairly contested because when Elizabeth does finally find her voice, she says, His name will be John. And the people are like, Elizabeth, you're crazy. No one in your family is named that. It's not traditional. It's not cultural. It's not the socially acceptable. And so they appeal to the higher authority. They go to the father. Now, I know when we kind of read through this passage through our cultural lens, we sit there and go, nah, typical women. They never get listened to, do they? (laughs) Insert gender debate. But that isn't the point of the text, nor is it the issue at hand. The problem that is unfolding, is Zechariah going to be faithful to the Word of God or not? That's the issue. You see, the angel, when he came to the temple, he said, you will name him. Not Elizabeth, you will name him John. And the angel expects him to live by faith in his Word. You see, Elizabeth, she gets it, she's a believer. She's happy to name him John. She's someone when Mary comes to her, blessed are you because when you heard the word of God, you believed. That's like a backhanded compliment to the husband. I'm blessed to you because when the word of God came to you, you doubted. I don't want to run poor Zachariah down here. If any think I probably identify with him more. I'd like to think that I'm in a Mary or an Elizabeth. We hear the word of God and we go in full confidence. The Lord will do it. But Zachariah, he's got this child in his arms. And you'd be sitting there, if you're the father, after eight days of holding your baby, still mute. Mm-hmm. Yoo-hoo. God, if this is the child that you gave me, then open my lips so that I might name him. But that's not what God does. Why? He wants him to put faith in his word, not faith in the sign, faith in his word. God's agenda, God's goal is to instill faith in his people. Trust. And he will go to great lengths of shutting up your gob for nine months or so, if it means bringing it about. You see, God is less concerned about your circumstance And he's more concerned about you leaning and trusting on him. He will happily compromise and jeopardize your circumstance to bring about trust and reliance in him. God is good. He is faithful. But it's not always going to be a safe ride. And the reason that he is willing to do this, we sit there and we think, this is quite mean. Faith in God is the way in which we receive the salvation of God faith in God is the way in which we come into a covenant relationship with God faith in God is the means by which we live and we serve him and we worship him without this we have nothing without faith we remain unsaved without faith we're outside the new covenant so of course God is going to do what he can to result in faith, he wants you to be saved, he wants you to be abiding in him He wants you to live your life holy and pleasing to Him. He loves that. So when we look again at Zechariah, we have an image of a man holding the fulfillment of God's Word. That's what he's got in his hand. He's got the fulfillment of God's words in his hand, yet the Word of God has not taken its full effect because he has not responded in faith. It's there, but he hasn't responded But when he does and he calls him John, then his mouth is liberated. And what comes out of his mouth except the pouring forth of the worship and the praise of God and his salvation. This is the same faith that is required of us today. Through Jesus Christ there is an invitation to salvation. There is forgiveness of sins. The grace of God, it extends out to everyone. The promise of eternal life, it's already set and secured. He's done it all and we are holding on, so to speak, when you hold up your Bible. The fulfilment of God's promise is right here in your hands. But if all you do is ever hold it in your hands and you never act in faith, you never call the baby John, so to speak, will your belief in the word of God be proven to be faithful that actually lives a life according to it? Because those are the people in whom salvation is having its full effect, who trust in the word of God and by faith live according to him as the new covenant people. You see, Theophilus, he knew the teachings of Jesus. We see this in the intro. Luke's writing that he would trust in it. That what he knew of Jesus would result in the certainty that lives by faith in the salvation work of Jesus. And I want you to be clear, uh, clear, as, as best as I can be clear to you, because there's deception and there's ignorance in the church. Knowing about Jesus is not faith in Jesus. Knowing about him is not putting faith in him. Until that knowledge has shown itself to be trusting in the word of God by living according to, there's no faith and there's no salvation. It's dead, that's what James would call it. And this is extremely important to understand because Christians, a lot of Christians end up believing two lies. Both which will deceive and destroy your soul and if they do you remain unsaved number one the belief that faith in Jesus is simply knowing the story but never doing anything about it my life for 22 years all right people like this they say they believe in the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ but they don't repent for their sins They say they believe in the righteousness of God, but they don't see the point in living righteously for God. They say they know Jesus as their Lord, but they won't obey his teachings. They say they are saved, but they are not being sanctified by the Spirit. Titus speaks on this. He says they claim to know God, they have knowledge of him, they claim this, but by their actions they deny him. You want to know how we deny the Lordship of Christ? By what we do. So we can sit there and say, I know the Lord, I know the Lord, I've seen him. But the actions of the person will prove the belief in the heart. If you have faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, then you'll go the way of John. You'll repent and be baptized in the forgiveness of sins. If you believe by faith in the righteousness that has been attained for you by Jesus Christ, then you'll walk in the perfect, sinless ways of our Lord. If you believe that Jesus Christ is our Lord, then you'll obey his teachings. And if you believe by faith that you are saved on the basis of Christ, then the Holy Spirit will produce in you the new creation. You will bear fruit. Genuine faith lives according to the knowledge of God's Word. And the second option many people fall into when they don't want to have genuine faith is universalism. The idea that Jesus' forgiveness, that his promise of salvation flows to everyone because what was done on the cross, restoring the whole world to himself, it just automatically saves everyone. Yet what is overlooked by people who will believe in such, which is heresy, is the means by which we hold on to that salvation. Yes, it's true that Jesus' salvation and forgiveness is available and it's grand enough to save everyone. The blood of Christ is effective to do so. But it is also true that those who are receiving it are those who live by faith in his word. Yes, the work is done. Yes, the hope is secure. But it is those who walk by faith according to God's word who are taking hold of such a great salvation. We are fooling ourselves and we are fooling others if we preach, teach, or live like pagans who don't know God, and we think we're on the right path. It's the faithless who conjure up this idea that everyone is saved apart from faith, because what they truly want is they want a religion that gives them heaven, but not a life that is devoted to God. They want the end results of heaven, but they don't want to live for the Lord. Jesus says that eternal life, heaven, it's knowing him and the Father. These two things don't break, they're the same thing. Zachariah would never know the salvation plan of God if he didn't exercise faith in naming him John. And So for everything that Theophilus can know, the teachings of Jesus, he can know them till the cows come home, but Luke's gospel remains a paperweight if he does not put faith in them and live according to them. Thankfully, the beautiful part of this message, he does. When they asked Zachariah, what will he be called? He wrote on what is the first century iPad, called a wax table. His name is John. Notice here, his name will be John. That's not what he said. His name is John. He is acting in faith that God has already named his child. And he's just walking in obedience to what God has already spoken. Before we move into the text, to look at Zachariah's song, I just want to point out two things. Just briefly. The first one is this. God is patient. God is patient. We're going to go through seasons of our life where we exercise great faith in our Lord. And we're going to go through seasons where we're full of doubt. But even when we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. And so if you're in seasons like this, look at Zechariah. God is patient with him. Zechariah is the first person that we look at and we're like, if someone should get it, you should get it. Someone should understand God's word, this guy should get it. And God is patient. And if you are his, you can be assured he will be faithful in doing what he can to bring you back. But know that his patience, he's looking for faith. And secondly, the gospel will spread when God's people are faithful. The gospel will spread when God's people are faithful. Look at the two accounts of Zechariah. The one where he's in the temple. The angel says, the good news has come to you, Zechariah, and you doubt And what happens? He comes out of there. First time in 400 years that the Lord's spoken. And everyone understands that something's happened, but they don't know. They don't know what it is. It's just met with confusion. And then we come to this account. And he puts faith in God's word. And what happens? His lips proclaim the good news of salvation to the people around him and they finally have an acknowledgement of what God is doing and who John is in that grand masterpiece that God is bringing about. You see, Jesus himself will say at the end of Luke that the forgiveness of sins will go out to all nations. That's prophetic. He's not saying it might happen. It will happen. And the way that it will go out is those who live by faith in God's word will send it out. We'll now move into the song, verses 67 to 79. This song is really beautiful. I wish I could capture it better for you. But you can cut it into two different ways. The most logical way when you read it off the paper, just to read it linearly, and you make it the divide at 76. And the reason that you make the divide there is because Zechariah is singing the praises of what God has done. And then at 76, he shifts gears and he starts to talk about his son and who his son is in light of what God is doing. It's really quite beautiful because what you'll watch is also the vocal, kind of the outlook, sorry. It goes from past into this future promise. It's a really lovely thing to read. There is another way to read this. This is the way we'll be looking at it this morning. It presents itself as a chiasm. Now, what is a chiasm? Let Google teach you. A chiasm, it's a repetition of ideas that are laid out and then they're reversed and laid out backwards again. And the point is so that you can easily remember what's happening. But it's also laid out that way because what's in the middle, what's in the core of the song, is what Luke wants you to fixate on. Now, I'm trying to put this up for you. Good. Works. So when we look at the text, what you have at the top of the song and what you have at the bottom of the song, God visits his people. At the bottom, you've got a future. Look, God is going to visit his people. This is how the song lays itself out. How will he visit? His king will bring about salvation when he comes. What will that salvation be if we look down the bottom? Sorry, the colours coordinate to the two parts. Salvation will be for the forgiveness of sins in the yellow. Now in the red, how do we know the prophet spoke of this? Well, now the bottom red, and John is a prophet along with those of the old who is showing you the way. Salvation will bring deliverance. What is that salvation? It's a deliverance in which we can now worship him unhindered. Centerpiece, what is his big point? He is doing this according to the covenant with Abraham that he confirmed on an oath. That's the crux of the song. That's the point he wants you to get. And so the way I wanna look at it is go from the middle and then we're gonna expand ourselves outward. In the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, God said to Abraham, you are going to have descendants. Nations are going to come from you. people, lots of people. Kings are also going to come from you. There's going to be a political authority that you're going to have that comes from your lineage. And on top of that, you're also going to inherit land. So what we have is we've got God's people and a God's authority living in God's land. That's actually a big summary of just the whole Bible if you read the whole thing. And so that's what the covenant promises have in store. But more than this, Abraham, when he goes to offer his son Isaac up to God as a sacrifice, God stops him and then he swears on an oath to Abraham and he says, the covenant that we have established, I promise you on my name, I will bring it about. You see, Israel in the covenant that it had with God, they broke it time and time again. They were apostate to God. But he would never break his covenant with them because he stood as a witness against himself that if he broke it, he'd condemn himself. I will not break my covenant with my people. And this is the double assurance that Hebrews speaks of. When we walk into Hebrews, he says, Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us but set before us may be greatly encouraged. Why is God fulfilling his word to Abraham? Because God will not lie to his people by making a promise and then breaking it. It is not the nature of God to do so, and he won't. And this is how we have the assurance. If it was based on our loyalty or our faithfulness, it'd be broken a long time ago. And so this is important for us because this is still today the promises that are finding their fulfillment in Jesus. And so before we move on to the next outer layer, we need to talk just briefly about the expectation of the fulfillment of the promise. The Jews were waiting for God's Messiah to liberate them From the authorities and the powers that be so that they could worship their god without any hindrance technically what they were trying to find in jesus was this guy that could lead a revolt against the people against the authorities take back jerusalem take back the land and then in their eyes they could finally worship their god again that's what they were looking for and when we read this next section coming out of the centerpiece salvation will bring deliverance. We need to read it through the eyes of Zechariah. It must have been extremely frustrating for someone whose job it was to worship God all the days of his life, only to find that it gets hindered over and over again by the authorities and the powers that be. And he wants them gone. He wants them gone because he wants to worship God in all freedom and liberty. That's what we love about our country, isn't it? You have freedom and liberty to worship your God here. It's beautiful. And so that's what you're reading in verse 71, but when you read its counterpart in 73b and 75, you're seeing what the actual salvation will bring deliverance from. Deliverance from the enemy so God's people can worship him. Think of Israel, right? God pulled them up out of Egypt for the purpose of, God says, let my people go so that they can worship me. The point of deliverance is that people are free to worship God, the external threat removed. Yet what we find with Israel is a big flaw. The external threat is gone, and the people remain apostate to God and they will not worship him. Because the true threat, threat, the real threat, it's in the human heart, it's sin. Let's jump out to the next part of the chiasm. The prophets, they are God's voice throughout history, telling people what God thinks about them and telling them what he is going to do. And there's this universal voice, as you read through, that all the prophets have. They say, on that day, talking about this future moment, on that day, they say, God is going to come and he will bring deliverance from the enemies. And when he comes, there'll be cleansing and there'll be forgiveness of sins. And this is the prophetic promise that the people are waiting for. On that day, God will come and he will cleanse us and forgive us of our sins. And what is showing us in in the counterpart that's down the bottom of his son, John, John is a prophet that belongs to the prophets of old. That he's come to prepare the way for the Lord so that when the Lord does come, when God does visit his people, people will know how to receive him. They will know what he's come to do. He's not coming to remove Roman rule. He's coming to remove the bondage of sin that is in our heart. And that's how you should receive him. Israel was brought out of Egypt, but their hearts were still back there. Their hearts still enslaved to the sin, and they don't want to worship God. You cannot live pleasing lives. You cannot worship God if you're living in sins. Those things don't compute. Which brings us to the next section, and we'll move out again. The king is the one who has power to save us from sins. As I said before, part of the Abrahamic covenant, kings will come from Abraham. And there was a king that came from the line of Abraham, and it was King David. And a covenant was established with him and God. And God said, someone from your lineage, he will rule forever. He will rule over God's people forever. And that is why when we hear from Luke's gospel about Mary's husband, Joseph, he's recorded as being from the line of the house of David. It's royal lineage. Of course, we learned last week, Joseph isn't actually the true father of Jesus. God is, and that's what gives him the title, Son of God. But Joseph fathered him, and it was important that he was born into a family whose lineage came from David. There's more to this story. If you go back into Israel's past, before they had a monarchy, before they had a king, what they had was judges, and they were trying to establish themselves among the other nations. They were trying to gain their territory, trying to solidify themselves And what happened was the people, they came to their priest Samuel and they said, what we need, Samuel, to make this happen, we need a king. We need a king like all the other nations. That's what we need. And Samuel, their priest, he looked at him and he said, I don't like that idea. I really don't like it. I'm going to take your proposal to God and I'm going to see what he says. So off the priest goes. And Samuel brings it to God and God says to him, let them have a king. Let someone rule over them. And he finished and he said to them, but know this for sure. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me as their king. They're rejecting me as their king. The rightful king of God's people has always been God. And people always want to reject, even to this day, God is king over their life. People, they didn't want that. I want a human representative. I want someone that's going to come and take charge over me. And God's like, I'm your rightful authority. And what we learn from Israel's history, that not even King David, not even the person who God says about him, he has a heart after me. Not even he can rightfully serve God with all that authority and all that power. And so when Jesus is born and God is made into the flesh and he is accepted by Joseph to be fathered by him and divinely and humanly, he is the true king of Jesus uh, of Israel. Sorry, Jesus became the true human representative of God as king and lord over the nation of Israel, over the people of God. Jesus was simply taking back what was rightfully always his from the very beginning. Because God is the only one fit to serve with that much power and authority over people. And how does he exercise this rule? He grabs the sins of his people and he puts them upon himself and he slays himself and redeems them. Ultimate power and authority. And you serve the people by laying down your life for them. You see, the cross, that's Jesus' big coronation. The crown jammed on the head of this beautiful man, mockingly saying, you're king. Robed in purple. Sorry. And put on a cross... That's his throne. He is your king, king of the Jews. That's what they put above him. And it's upon that cross, God takes his rightful place. And what he does with his kingship is he forgives the many. You see, if you were to contrast King David and King Jesus... In King David, you've got a man that will cover up his sins by killing another man for it. That's what he does. He sins with Bathsheba. Oh, oh, I need to cover up my sins. I'm going to kill this man. He's going to pay for what I've done. And you come to King Jesus. He's done nothing wrong. And he says, I'm going to cover up your sins. I'll give my life for your sin. Now contrasted very differently. This is how we know that God will visit. And so we move into the last part. The earliest confession of the church is quite simple. The earliest confession of the early church is this: Jesus is Lord. That's it. It's not very big, but it's profound. They elevate Jesus to the height of God in the Old Testament. They are strictly monotheistic and they elevate and they worship Jesus as God himself who came to earth, who visited his people and forgave his people of their sins. That people were once living in darkness, they were living in sins, they didn't even know that they were in them and the light has dawned upon them and they now have a way, a peaceful way to come back to God if they would come into acknowledgement of the King. And that is the God that you have come to in Christ. I'm going to finish my sermon here. And I want to focus on deliverance. As I said, the Jews, Zechariah, they were waiting for this day of, of external threats, political authorities, so that they could worship their God in freedom, unhindered. Christ comes and he eliminates the internal threat the one of sins, because that's our root problem. And the beautiful thing is, is that you are now free, even if external threats abound now. You are completely free in Christ to worship your Lord in faithfulness. But it is also right for us to yearn as Christians, and know this, it is also right for you as Christians to long for the day of liberty in this world when there stands to be no rebellion or political power or policy that goes against God. This is a cry of the early church, Maranatha, come our Lord. It's the cry of Jesus himself in his prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. Because the coming of the Lord again, the coming when God visits his people again, he's going to wipe all this away. Everything that stands in rebellion, the devil, the evil spiritual forces, those who speak falsely of God, the wicked, they will all be taken away. And there will only be liberty and freedom from the inside out for God's people to worship Him all the days of their lives. And you're never going to wrestle with the tension again of sins. Remember C.S. Lewis, one of his books, I can't remember which one. It's a beautiful thing. I think one of the biggest wrestles we have is in our heads. And he was talking about the day that he cannot wait when every thought is pure. When he's not weighing up what's right and what's wrong. Because everyone will know internally how to walk perfectly before the Lord. And so on that day, there won't just be a purity of the internal, but every external thing that does not worship God will be removed. And I say this, of course, there's a mixed emotion there's a pure joy. There's a pure excitement. There's a pure love in Zechariah's words because he's waiting for this day when the Lord will visit again and everything is removed and we are completely unhindered to live for God. But we also say it with some type of fear, some type of mourning because on the day that our Lord visits again, it's judgment for those who have not received the good news. I don't want that for people. King Jesus, when he comes, he doesn't want that for people. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came to shed light on the human condition of our sins and our fallenness. So that we might come to him and receive forgiveness. And that is the opportunity that you have now. That is the opportunity that you have this morning. And I really don't understand if there is enmity with God why not walk in the pathway of peace? Because it's available to you this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is nothing left for those who walk by faith but to worship you and to honor you. Not right, again, I just pray for the reality of what you have done in your son to just be evident in the way that we live, in the way that we speak, Lord, raise us up to be your people. That the nations around us would all glory in your name on the day when you come and visit. In your name, amen.